0: When you go to make plans, do you think about what God has said to do or has said not to do? And if you decide to do it anyway, even if you know that it's something that God doesn't want you to do, why are you then not going to pray about it? Because I think the reality is, if we know God says not to do something, but we've made up our minds to do it anyway... We don't want God to answer our prayer and convict us and tell us, no, you shouldn't have done the thing that you knew already not to do. And the reason for being convinced that we should do something that we know God doesn't want us to do is by and large because our hearts are committed to something other than God. We have a problem of idolatry. So idolatry says, I'm worshiping this instead of God. Then we know what God says, but we ignore it then we don't ask God for wisdom about decisions that we're making because then we would have to acknowledge what God has already said and we would have to cast off our idolatry. And in this passage, we saw last week, the beginning of this section, Isaiah 28-35, through 35, uh, from chapter 28-29, and 29, we saw that God is your crown and cornerstone and so rely on Him instead of all of these other hopes. And today we're going to continue looking at the woes that Isaiah brings to unrepentant Israel and Judah, particularly here, Judah. And in Isaiah 30 and 31, Isaiah urges them to repent of godless plans and idolatry before God rises up. Repent, first of all, of godless plans. We see this in chapter 30, verses 1 through 17. Uh, It's highlighted in verses 1 to 2 Woe to the rebellious children! Who make a plan, but not mine, an alliance, but not of my spirit. Who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. The first truth we see from these verses is that alliances with pagans will fail. And why is the reason, what's the reason for that? Well, God's plan is what we are supposed to follow. How do we know God's plan? Well, one of the songs we sang is based on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Not in every case is the reverse of a verse true. But I think it's very clear that if we don't acknowledge God, and if we go our own way, we should not expect him to lead and guide us. I think that's pretty clear. And so God's plan ought to be followed. And when we consider what has come earlier in the history of Israel and Judah we might say, well, what's the big deal about them going down to Egypt? Well, I want you to turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. While you're turning there, I'm going to read for you a verse from Exodus. When God first leads the people out of the land of Egypt, Exodus 13, 17, when Pharaoh let let the people go... God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though it was near, for God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. So when he first leads them out of Egypt, God's concern is that they not go back. Over and over again in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we see the phrase, I led them out of Egypt. You were delivered from Egypt. I led you out of Egypt. I took you out of Egypt. I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Dozens of times we see a phrase, a variation on that phrase. God had taken them out of Egypt, and God did not want them to go back to Egypt. We say, well, but that's just sort of um, descriptive or historical. Well, but then there's a specific command in Deuteronomy 17. Starting in verse 14, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, which is exactly what happened in the time of Samuel, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Then we come to verse 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt, to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Notice the end of what Robert read for us this morning. Verse 16. No, for we will flee on horses. And the beginning of the section, we will go down to Egypt and find refuge in it. So why was it such a big deal for the Israelites to seek refuge in Egypt to make trade alliances with Egypt so that they can multiply horses and put their trust in those things. Because God specifically said not to. By multiplied examples all throughout the books of the law, by the fact that he didn't take them back that way when they first left, and by the specific command in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But the problem for God's people was instead of saying, here's what God has said, we will walk in it, here's what God wants, we will do it. They said, here's what we want, and we don't care that God has said, don't do that. But the having horses and the going to Egypt was kind of a symptom of the idolatry of their hearts. They wanted to worship all of these pagan gods, so then why wouldn't they? Trust in the surrounding nations and behave like all the other pagan nations who worshipped false gods, made alliances with each other, and hoped for the best it was all going to work out. When you act like the people around you, the pagan nations, you're going to do exactly what they do. You're not going to see anything wrong with it. You're going to make excuses for living the exact same way. Why did they ask for a king? They asked for a king in Samuel's day because they saw the other nations having a king, and they said, It's not good enough for us that God is our king because we can't see him. We want a human king. But God knew that, already knew that was going to happen because He said it in Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15. And God knew that they were going to be tempted to go back to Egypt and trust in horses and chariots and pagan alliances with ungodly nations, and so He warned them against it, and they did not. Listen. But then it's interesting that he says, and you did not consult my spirit, verse 2. If they had consulted God, do you think he would have said, yes, it's okay, and forget about all that stuff I said before? No, he would have told them, no, this is not the right way. Why didn't they ask? Because they didn't want to be told no. And there's a parallel example, I think, in Joshua chapter 9. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, the story of when they come in the land and they start conquering There's this group of people called the Gibeonites and they say, hmm, this is not going to go well for us. So they dress in old clothes, they have worn out food and moldy food and old wine that started to spoil and they take all this old stuff because they want to give the impression they've come from really far away. So they come to the Israelites and they say, hey, we're from way over there. We make an alliance with us? And the Israelites didn't ask god they said sure you're a long way off it doesn't matter then they realized that they had been deceived but at least in that instance they could claim a measure of ignorance even though they behaved foolishly and should have asked god because god had said don't make alliances with the people right around you but they thought they knew they weren't right around them they were deceived they made a foolish decision in ignorance It was still the wrong decision, but there was a measure of ignorance. But when you come to Isaiah chapter 30, this whole thing of going down to Egypt and trusting in Egypt, they knew better by this point. God had clearly laid it out for them. But it is also interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that I think something that should have been happening was not happening. Because in Deuteronomy 17, the last little part of that section says, "...when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left," that's going to come up in Isaiah 30 a little bit later, "...so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel." the kings stopped reading God's law they stopped copying it out and knowing what it said which didn't give them an excuse the priests should have come along and reminded them even if there is the possibility the kings didn't know but God's word was clear and his people disregarded it and they followed after their idols they made alliances that God had forbidden and they didn't even ask him hey God is this is okay to have an opportunity for God to rebuke them and say no it's not okay repent turn away from it so what does God say? Egypt is not a refuge for you. You want to go and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt and refuge in the safety of Pharaoh? I didn't take you out of Egypt and show you that I am God by all these disasters that I brought on the land of Egypt, the plagues that devastated that land, so you could go and say, hey, this is, a good, this is safe. It's like when kids are playing tag you have a spot that's designated safe right why would you think the land of Egypt is safe seeing what God did during Exodus because their idolatry and their self focus and all these other things had blinded them to realities and so God says to them Egypt is no refuge for you but it's going to bring shame and humiliation There was only one time where God sent them down to Egypt, and they had already been there and done that, and God didn't want them to go back. God sent Abraham's descendants down when Joseph is the ruler over Egypt under Pharaoh. Then he brought them out, and he said, don't go back. Every time apart from that time when people went down to Egypt, before or after it was in disobedience to God and lack of trust in him at the very least. Think about the trouble Abraham almost got himself into when he went down to Egypt because he didn't trust God to provide for him during the famine in the land. His wife almost gets defiled, he almost gets killed, he lies to Pharaoh. God protects him, but his going down there was a sign of not trusting God. The Israelites in Isaiah's day, when they make alliances with Egypt, it's a sign of them not trusting God. So not only will alliances with pagans fail because they're displeasing to God, because they're against his purpose, but bribing pagans at the bidding of false prophets would also fail. And this is the thing of what's going on in verse 6 where it talks about all this wandering in the wilderness and treasure being carried on camels. Why is there treasure being carried on camels in the land of the south of Egypt? And why does it say, to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. They're sending tribute down to Egypt through the wilderness to the south of Israel and Judah in order that the Egyptians will hold up their end of the alliance. People don't do stuff for free. as a general rule, right? The Egyptians weren't going to come and help Israel out of the goodness of their hearts. Israel was going to have to send them gold and other riches. And so that's what was going on in verse 6. But God says... Their help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab who has been exterminated. And the name Rahab here is, we're not supposed to think Rahab the one with the scarlet cord and all that in the, in the time of the conquest of the land. This is a word that's used several times in scripture that's uh, basically synonymous with arrogance or pride. And so God is essentially saying, I have called Egypt pride who has been wiped out. So if you said, hey, what's a sure thing that I should invest all my riches in? And God says, hey, that thing that you want to invest in, that's pride that's been wiped out. Does that sound like a good idea? Absolutely not. But in their minds, it was. Treasures to bribe a proud nation would not prevail against God. And furthermore, God's word would stand as witness against them. So God... Says through Isaiah, go write this on a tablet before them, inscribe it on a scroll. So this is, you know, we as a general rule don't have the right to say, I told you so to people because there's so many times that we mess up. But God has the right to say, I told you so. God says, Isaiah, write down these words. They don't see yet that this is going to be empty and shame and futile, but write it down. And then when it happens, they can look at this scroll and you can say, here's God's, I told you so. Who are they listening to instead? Verse 9, it's a rebellious people, false sons, who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, don't see. Hey, prophets, stop prophesying about the future. Hey, seers, don't see visions. Hey, people who might remind us and tell us things that we don't want to hear, stop doing it because we don't want to hear it. Verse 11, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Say, Okay, is that a thing still today? Absolutely. I'll read for you a little excerpt of Second Timothy chapter four. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn aside turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Is there still a problem today? Absolutely. And when we have the same attitude that the Israelites did, that we don't want to hear what God has to say, and we want to go our own way, but we still want to have a veneer of respectable religiosity, we will find somebody who says what we want to hear. God says, love your wife and sacrifice for her as Christ loves the church. we are like, that's a lot of work. I don't want to hear that. I'm going to find somebody who says, do whatever you want have an open marriage, commit adultery, immorality, doesn't matter. You know, Jesus paid for it all. That's a twisting and a perversion of the truth of the gospel that God has dealt with sin. The point of God dealing with sin is not so that we say, I'm going to keep living in it. It's so that we say, I'm turning away from it. Because God has dealt with it. And there's forgiveness, but I don't keep going back to it. Or somebody will say, um... All that stuff that God says about being committed to one another in the church and telling people about Jesus, that's just some remnant of an old old-fashioned religion. You don't actually have to do all that kind of stuff. The way that you love your neighbor is by doing what you want to do. You can find a false teacher to tell you anything that you want to hear if you look hard enough. What do we want in America? We want money, and we want comfortable lives. Guess what? There are a lot of preachers who say, come follow Jesus. He's going to give you money and a comfortable life. What did God say? In this world you'll have tribulation, but don't fear because I've overcome the world. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This life is not easy. But I'm with you. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to blind yourself to the truth of what God has said because you want to hear what you want to hear just like the Israelites did? Or are you going to see the emptiness and the foolishness of setting something up in the place of God and then all the steps that flow out of that so that you can persist in that lie and in that idolatry and in that sin? What does God say next? Alliances and bribes are going to bring you destruction. Since you've rejected this world and put your trust in oppression and guile, the Egyptians are a people who have oppressed you in the past and who will again. They are deceiving you that they're your friends. All they want is your money and your treasure, and they will turn on you. But since you've decided to trust in those things, here's what it looks like. There's a wall that's about to fall down. When I lived in Allen Park, my house, uh, the foundation of the porch had a double brick wall, and the fill inside had, over time, as the corner of the support had sunk, and as the fill had kind of pushed away, the, the wall of the porch was bulging out. Eventually, it was just going to collapse. So what did I have to do? I had to take the whole thing apart, clean all the mortar off, rebuild the end of the porch so that it didn't collapse. Now, a porch where it's supported on two of the sides and anchored to the house on the back side is not going to collapse suddenly, right? But think about a wall that is different. When uh, my, uh, the church I grew up in started building a Christian school and there was some error or miscalculation when they were building the wall of the, one of the walls of the school and there was a strong wind and the whole wall fell down and they had to start over for that corner of the building. That's the sort of thing that's being described here. You think it's secure, you think everything's good, and there starts to be this bulge, it starts to, to to fall apart, and then suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, it falls down. And that's what God says to the people of Israel and Judah. When you trust in Egypt, it's like that wall that looks good, and all of a sudden it just it falls down, and it's destruction. If you fall under it, you're dead, right? These alliances and these bribes are going to bring destruction. Why? Because they're rejecting God's word. And because it's going to fail spectacularly. It says, verse 14, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar. How many of you have ever had a clay pot? You drop it on the the ground. Or, I'm going to pick on Braden for a second. Braden, I said, Braden, hey, go take this bin and put it by the car. So Braden took the bin and threw it over the one car to put it next to the other car. What happened when brittle plastic hit the driveway? We're like, let's not do that anymore. So, and I don't think he will. But um, it shatters. But with a clay pot, with the plastic bin, it just shattered on the corner where it hit. With a clay pot, if it falls with enough force and enough violence, it completely shatters, and there's not enough left to really do anything with. Notice what it says in verse 14, a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or scoop water from a cistern. It's so utterly shattered and broken, there's not even a big enough chunk left over that you can scoop a little bit of water out or safely hold a coal from the fire. You want to trust in Egypt, it's going to fail spectacularly. But in contrast, repentance would bring rest. Verses 15 through 17, Trusting in God by repentance to receive rest, quietly waiting and trusting in God would bring deliverance for them. This sort of goes back to what it said in Isaiah chapter 7, and I think verse 4. Take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remelia. The Christian life is not let go, let God sort of wait for stuff to happen, but there is a significant aspect of the Christian life that is resting and waiting for God's deliverance because we can't deliver ourselves. But instead of that, they said, nope, Egypt will help us. Nope, our idols will save us. Nope, we know better. God patiently offers his help to people who do not deserve it and says if you would turn from your sin you will find deliverance but so often we stubbornly refuse nope we got fast horses god says i've got faster enemies nope we've got big plans god says my plan's going to prevail forget about yours So God said, cast aside these godless plans. God had already said no, and God had not been asked, and their motivation was wrong, which, you know, James says if your reason for not asking is, you don't ask, but if your reason for asking is so you can do what you want, God's not going to give you the answer that you want either. Why else were the Israelites supposed to repent? Or in what way were they supposed to repent? They were supposed to repent of the underlying idolatry that was the reason for them going their own way and not consulting God and doing what God had said not to do. Why should they repent of idols? Because God's gracious and compassionate. Verses 18 through 26 of chapter 30. These idols had led to the ungodly alliances and the false hopes, but... Verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And verse 22, you will defile your graven images. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. First of all, we see in connection with this, repent of idols because God is gracious and compassionate. God is compassionate and afflicts only until his people turn from idols. At least in this context. Now, I know there's the, there's the rare cases like Job where God afflicts for reasons other than because we're sinning, right? But in this case, it is a disciplined kind of affliction that God had brought into their lives so that they would turn away from idolatry. First of all, verse 18, God is both just and kind. The Lord is a God of justice. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. We tend to say God is just or kind, but God is just and kind. And those who are blessed are those who long for him. God hears the cry of his people. Verse 19, He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. The problem was not with God not listening to them. The problem was with them not calling out to God for help. Verse 20, God would rescue them and be their teacher. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation, privation is like, our word we would use would be like deprivation or lack or need, something like that. You don't have enough, right? And water of oppression. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. So Deuteronomy 17, who was supposed to do that job? The king. But when the kings failed, and the priests failed, and the prophets failed, except for a handful of them like Isaiah, God says, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to be your teacher, and when you start to go the wrong way, I'm going to say, don't go that way. Stay on the right path. The way of wisdom, the way that's pleasing to me. And we see this all throughout Scripture, in all the ways that human rulers, and prophets, and priests, and kings, and leaders of various kinds fail, You come to the New Testament and you see Jesus teaching people on behalf of God, showing God the Father to them. God Himself would be their teacher. And when God's people really know God, what do they do? They repudiate their idols. It says, you will defile your graven images and your molten images. You will scatter them and say, be gone. Matthew chapter 10, what's Jesus' response to temptation? Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's what tends to be our attitude with the things that we worship instead of God. I'm going to scale back. I've worshipped money. I'm going to do it on a smaller scale. I've worshipped recognition. I'm going to try to get it at church instead of for my job. I've worshipped lust. Well, yeah, before I was a believer, maybe I committed open acts of lust but I'm going to scale back and it's just going to be something that I kind of like go back to privately and quietly and nobody has to know about. I've worshipped greed. Well, it looks bad to have 40 of something. I'm only going to have five of something. We tend to scale back our idolatry instead of abandon it. Or we tend to switch idols. Right? We trade the idols when we are in our 20s and 30s of things like gratifying lust or gratifying greed or having some sense of power. And then when we get into our 50s and 60s, we're like, ah, those aren't very realistic idols anymore. I'm going to have some other sort of idol that people will affirm me and recognize me that... um, I can just sort of live this life I've always dreamed of in some way, some other way that's different from then, but it's still not the way that God wants me to live. So we scale back on our idols, or we switch our idols, and verse 22 says, smash your idols, abandon them, repudiate them. How did Jesus say it? If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to go without a hand into glory than to hell with a whole body. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, I think we have to recognize, there's people who've taken that passage literally and did that and still found that they struggled with idolatry or whatever else. Jesus is making this point. How far are you willing to go to deal with your sin? The answer in most cases for us is not very far struggle with pornography i still need a smartphone i gotta have a smartphone everybody has a smartphone you struggle with greed i have to go to home depot to get all these parts for this project i'm doing at my house and never mind the fact that I'm looking at a nicer grill or a nicer lawnmower or a nicer whatever, and, and I'm just sort of letting my greed run rampant in that scenario. I am being discontent about the life that God's given me, but I need the Hallmark channel, and I need to watch home improvement shows, and I need to have all these things that I look out about dream vacations, because no. When we feed our idols, we're not helping ourselves. When we say, but, and we rationalize why we're going to keep doing that thing, or why we're going to keep creating this situation for ourselves to fail in, we are not responding the way that verse 22 talks about. And we can come up with an endless supply of excuses for why we have to leave a little bit of an outlet to go back to that sin that we should have been done with long ago. But some of it, I think, comes earlier. Because as long as we're in the position where we think that we don't need God, we don't pour our hearts out before him in prayer, he's not our teacher, he's not, we're not listening to him, we're not going to cast aside our idols. Because we don't really love God. And we don't think he's better, and we don't think he's worth it. God blesses his people when they're committed to him alone. Verse 23. Then he will give you rain for the seed and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous. The ox and the donkeys will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed on every lofty mountain. There will be streams running with water. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. On the day, the Lord binds up the fractures of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. God's blessing follows repentance, not the other way around. So God's people should reject their own plans because doing their own plans rejects God's spirit and God's plan that he's laid out. God's people should reject idols because those idols underlie their pursuit of their own plans in opposition and rejection of God and because God is gracious and compassionate that if we turn from our idols, he will forgive us and receive us. But I would argue this. I think there's an expiration date on repentance. We need to repent before God rises up. Look at verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and his tongue is like a consuming fire, his breath like an overflowing torrent, which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. God is going to have a day appointed in which he strikes down the enemies of his people and his own enemies. And there's three pictures of it here: a a flood, a flash flood, a sieve where things are shaken out and filtered out, and a bridle that that draws something unwillingly to where it's going to go. So the overflowing torrent, you think everything's good, you get caught in the flash flood, you get swept away. The sieve, you think everything's all fine. And then you say, Yes, this is I'm 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 gonna escape this, but then as the sieve shakes, all of the things that are not deemed worthy fall out the bottom of it. And then the picture of the bridle it's the horse that's going to be made into cat food. Maybe they don't do that anymore, but they used to. The bridle that leads to ruin. In contrast, God's people, verse 29, will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival, and gladness of heart is when one marches to the sound of the flute to go the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. God will be a refuge for his people, those who are truly following after him, even as he smites and strikes the nations. And then, furthermore, and the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard, and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger, and in the flame of a consuming fire and cloud bursts, downpour, and hailstones, for at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with the rod, and every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles brandishing weapons, he will fight them for Topheth, the place of burning has long been ready, indeed, it has been prepared for the king, he has made a deep and large fire of fire with plenty of wood the breath of the Lord like a torrent of brimstone sets it aflame. flame 2 Thessalonians 1 says a really similar thing you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who have rejected him those who do not obey the gospel on that day in which he comes to be marveled at among his people worshipped by those who believed in him God's striking of his enemies accomplishes the deliverance of his people, but the main emphasis here is on the destruction of God's enemies. So if there is a space for repentance, it is in that time before God comes to strike the world with fire and judgment. And for us, it's even sooner, potentially. It is in that space as long as we draw breath. You can't do any repenting when you're dead. The time for repentance is while God has given you life. And the time and space for repentance for anyone in the entirety of the world is until Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, to swipe out God's enemies to deliver his people verse 30 or chapter 31 kind of closes out short chapter god rises up against the proud he's going to cause them to stumble woe to those who go down to egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but they do not look to the holy one of israel nor seek the lord repeating the same things that he said at the beginning of chapter 30 don't go down to egypt don't trust in horses don't trust in chariots trust in god God is the Holy One of Israel. Pharaoh will not deliver. God is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words. This goes back to the idea of God being the teacher in the middle of chapter 30. Verse 3, The Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand and he who helps will stumble and he who is helped will fall and all of them will come to an end together. God doesn't really have to do anything except say, here is judgment and the whole thing falls apart. Pharaoh's army crosses over the Red Sea. What happens? Moses, on God's behalf, stretches out his hand. And then when he draws it back, the wheels come off the chariots. They can't drive anymore. The waters close over them. God's destruction is accomplished. If you know that's the case... Why would you trust in Egypt's horses and chariots? They failed them at the Red Sea. They're going to fail them when, a, when Israel trusts in them. They will fail them in every case in which God's people trust in someone or something other than God. There's another picture of God coming down in defense of his people. As the lion growls over his prey and he will not be terrified at their voice, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. God's basically saying Jerusalem is like the den of the lion and I'm the lion who's going to come down and defend it and anybody who's not stupid is not going to come and attack the lion right and then verse 5 like flying birds the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem a, a, a mother bird if you come and try to take the eggs out of her nest what's going to happen they're going to get pecked in the eyes right? like that God is going to protect his people He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. So, what is the proper response? Repent. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful mans have made for you. Sinful hands have made for you as a sin. And the Assyrian will fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man will devour him, so he will not escape the sword. And his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic. His princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Israel said, We're scared of Assyria, so we're going to trust in Egypt. And the only reason they were scared of Assyria is because they were worshiping idols who hadn't helped them out. And the Assyrians were making inroads against them. So they said, all right, now we need to go get help from Egypt. And God says, no, Assyria is going to fall. Egypt's going to fall. All of the nations who reject God will fall. Stop trusting in them. Trust in me. You and I may not struggle with pagan alliances. It's not like we're diplomats trying to negotiate things with some other nation because we're worried that we're in trouble, right? But we trust in a lot of things to help us instead of God. And there are things that each of us struggle with to worship instead of God. And to the extent that we worship those things and love them instead of God, we start to make decisions ignoring what we know God has said to be true And we started to make plans without consulting God's spirit because if we were to start praying to God, he would convict us and we would say, yeah, I know this is wrong. I shouldn't do it. And yeah, I know I shouldn't worship this. And the whole thing would come unraveled. And we don't want to give up our idols sometimes, many times, far too often. So the root issue is the idols. But the symptom is the making plans and ignoring what God has said. Plans apart from prayer, plans in contradiction to what God has said is right and wrong. And we get in a mode where we think that this sort of thing can go on forever. Idle, ignore God's word, not pray and make decisions on our own. but there is an expiration date on how long that kind of foolishness can persist. Whether it be the span of our lives, whether it be the point at which we say, my life is in a disaster, I need your help, God. Whatever that point is, if you belong to God, I think there comes a point where he shows you the foolishness of that endless cycle of idolatry, rejection of God's word, ignoring of God's spirit. And if you never experienced that, think you ought to be really worried. Because there's a decent chance it means you don't know God at all. If God lets you worship idols Ignore what the Bible says is right and wrong, and never pray, and everything keeps going all right. It might very well be because you don't know God. So don't think that that means that everything is good just because everything is not falling apart. And conversely, if you're one of God's people and you're living in this pattern and everything is falling apart, it's a good sign because God's not letting you be complacent in your sin. We have to reject the idols and return to what God has said is true and right, that he has said he will teach us as our God, as the one who shows us not to turn to the right or to the left. And we have to fervently seek God in prayer so that the plans and the decisions that we make are from him and not from just what we want so look at your life do you pray before you make decisions do you know and follow what God has said in his word or do you ignore it is there some aspect of something that you love instead of or a whole lot more than God some or all those things may be true of you But God says deal with it now. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at a passage like this, at first glance it seems really disconnected from our daily experience because we don't care about horses and chariots or Egypt or all those sorts of things. But the closer we look, the more that we realize there's a lot of relevance to our lives It is so easy for us to arrogantly make plans without consulting your spirit, to wickedly reject what is clearly revealed in your word, to selfishly and blindly set up idols in place of worshiping you. Lord, our hearts are desperately wicked above all things who can know it Help us, as the psalmist says, that you would examine our hearts and see if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Whether we need to turn and trust in you for the first time, whether we need to return and trust you faithfully as we once did before but haven't for a while, whether we need to keep trusting you because we are faithfully following you so that we don't get uh, drawn into these sinful cycles. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, Lord, do the work that you need to do in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.